It's so great to gather on a Sunday morning with the people of God, to walk the aisle, to cross the lobby and see so many faces of people that we have walked with for so long, people that we love. It's so good to be amongst the people who sing the gospel with all their hearts and who are glad to give their finances to the great cause of spreading the gospel across the earth. I love Sunday morning. Do you? I love Sunday morning. Greetings to those of you who didn't come because of the the rains and the flooding. Uh, Nice to see you on the live stream. Please open to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We are in a new series on the Ten Commandments. Jared introduced that series last week. And this is the second sermon in the series where we will deal with the first commandment. The first commandment. So if you have your Bibles open to Exodus 20, let us read together verses 1. And two. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Lord, we ask you this morning to save sinners, to bring back prodigals, and to sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. I'd like to begin our discussion of this, the the first of the Ten Commandments, by reflecting together with you on the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. I'd like to talk about the obedience of Christ to this command. And in that temptation in the wilderness, Satan's great objective was to get Jesus to violate the first commandment, to get the second Adam to be a lawbreaker, as the first Adam was. So as recorded in Mark 1 and Luke 4 and Matthew 4, right after Jesus was baptized by John, as soon as he came out of the water... The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. And the Scriptures say, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. As surely as God's voice was heard at the giving of the Ten Commandments, 
It was heard here. God spoke. This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Then immediately Jesus was led by the Spirit or driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting there for 40 days, Jesus became hungry. He was at a point of extreme hunger, extreme weakness, and vulnerability. And at that moment, Satan came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, as if, as if what God said might not be true, if you're the Son of God, then turn these stones into loaves of bread. Get what your body craves. Get what you need to live. Turn these stones to bread. But Jesus, knowing that life was more than just the physical life, Jesus, not wanting to use his powers to cut short the test which the Spirit had led him into, Jesus, trusting that God would provide for him what he needed in due time, replied to Satan, saying, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds or that comes from the mouth of God, citing Deuteronomy 8.3. Jesus was not going to violate the first commandment by trusting himself for provision, or following the counsel of one who spoke as if God's words were uncertain, or by yielding to the deepest longings of his flesh in a way that would be contrary to the will of God. Well, then the devil took him to the holy city, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down. For God's word says he will command his angels concerning you. In other words, okay, if, if you're the son of God, prove it. You of all people will be protected. Have faith in your father's promise. He will send his angels to bear you up. But Jesus saw the evil in that proposal. He would not presume upon the father's will and protection. He said later, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. He would, not, he would not willfully require something of God in violation of the first commandment. So he quoted again from Deuteronomy. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, then Satan took Jesus to a high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and he offered to give it all to him. All the kingdoms of the world in all their splendor. They can be yours. Now, now this was a temptation to seize upon the promise of the Father apart from the Father, by unlawful means. Both Satan and Jesus knew what Psalm 2 promised. You are my son. 
I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Seize upon that. You can have it now. But the catch is by unlawful means. If you will fall down and worship me. Like that's blatant. What, what arrogance of Satan. If you'll fall down and worship me. Jesus, all you have to do is secretly and privately when nobody's looking, prostrate yourself for the briefest of moments before Satan. To which Jesus replied very sharply with anger and abhorrence. He said, be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That's a positive restatement of the first commandment from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, Jesus was filled with outrage and anger because violating the first commandment provokes and arouses the righteous indignation of God. And we see in Jesus' angry rebuke of Satan the same divine anger that we see in the scene and in the setting of the giving of these commandments. If one reads Exodus 20 in the context of Exodus 19, we see what a, what a dreadfully fearful this occasion was. In chapter 19, verse 9, God announced that he was going to descend upon the mountain in a thick cloud in order that the people would believe Moses forever. And he warned the people to stand at a distance from the base of the mountain lest they die. Then three days later, he did descend in darkness and in a thick cloud and with thunder and lightning, with the earth quaking and with a trumpet blast that grew louder and louder and louder so that Moses himself quaked with fear. Then God himself spoke, revealing those things which provoke his wrath. And all of Israel heard him. When he was done, Israel was so shaken that they pleaded with Moses, we don't want God to talk to us anymore. Thank you very much. Please don't let God speak to us. We need a mediator between us and God. Now clearly this was intended by God to be a momentous occasion not only for Israel, but for all of mankind, to help us know, to help us know and understand what destroys human flourishing and what provokes God's wrath, what provokes divine wrath. And the very first words he speaks are, I 
am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I delivered you from bondage. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And we know that the reason he brought them out of the land of Egypt was the reason that Moses gave to Pharaoh. Let us, let us go out at, that we might worship him. And here, the first words God speaks, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Here's how you will worship me. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, let's look at that word by word. The first word is you. You shall have no other gods before me. God uses the singular form of the word you, which is very unusual. He's speaking to a group, but rather than using the plural form like you all, he uses the singular form like you. Like me, you, you, me, you shall have no other gods before me. Then we get to the word have. You shall have, you shall have no other gods before me. And looking at how that word is used in Hebrew, it means you shall not own, or possess, or seek, or love, or desire, or worship other gods. Moving to the phrase, no other gods, you shall have no other gods. Those words do not suggest that there actually are other gods. The Bible is crystal clear. There is ever and only one God. The great liturgical Shema of the Jewish faith is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord, is one. Next are the words before me. You shall have no other gods before me. What is meant by before me? Well, God is not saying that we should have no gods that rank higher than him, as if having other gods is okay so long as Yahweh is at the pinnacle of the hierarchy of the pantheon. He's not saying that. What he means is you shall have no other gods before my face, before my presence. Now, God is omnipresent and he's omniscient he is everywhere present and he sees everything where can I flee from your presence if I ascend to the heights you are there if I go down into the depths behold you are there he sees everything he knows everything and what he's saying here is that he never once presented before his face any other God. When he looks at human hearts, when he looks at human behavior, he doesn't want to see men and women who are created in his image, who are made to glorify him, made to enjoy him and delight in him, 
He doesn't want to look at them having or owning or cherishing or loving, obeying, serving, bowing down to, adoring, or worshiping any other God. Can somebody say amen? If you haven't realized it already, let me state it plainly. All of us have broken this commandment. Because at the heart of every violation of God's law, at the heart of every disobedient act, at the heart of every sin is idolatry. This first commandment is the first commandment for a reason, because all the other commandments subsume under this one. Stephen Charnock expresses it, it, expresses it well in his wonderful two-volume set, The Existence and the Attributes of God. He says this, he says, Man, in every sin aims to set up his own rule as his rule, his own glory as the end of his actions, against the will and the glory of God. All the wicked inclinations in the heart, all its secret repining or or complaining, all the self-applauding confidences in our own wisdom and strength, All our envy, ambition, and revenge are sparks from the same fire. The language of every one of these is, I would be a Lord to myself. I would not have a God superior to me. So, unlike Jesus, who refused Satan's temptations, all of us yielded to Satan and were dead in our transgressions, because the wages of sin is death. You want to know how serious an offense it is to God when men and women violate the command to have other gods? Just look at the penalty. The wages of sin is death. Now, in commenting on Ephesians 2.2, which makes that point, Dane Ortland, in his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, says this. We were following Satan, the prince of the power of the air, even if we didn't know it. The power of hell was not only something we yielded to, it was something inside us. We were quietly enthroning self and eviscerating our souls of the beauty and dignity and worship for which we were made. Sin was our coddled treasure, our golem's ring, our settled delight. In short, he says, we were dead, utterly helpless. And that's what his mercy healed. Brothers and sisters, the law can't heal that. The law is powerless to justify us. The law is powerless to sanctify us. The law is powerless to do what only God himself can do, which is 
bring to life those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Thank God with me this morning that the man Christ Jesus fully obeyed all ten commandments. Thank God that he went to the cross. He took no shortcut. He took no devil's shortcut. He carried the weight of our transgressions on his shoulders. He bore the wrath of God against our sins, and he took our place. Thank God that though we broke his law, he kept it perfectly. And that his perfect obedience is now imputed to all who believe in him, making us heirs of eternal life. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Well, let's consider for a few moments what this first commandment forbids. What does this first commandment forbid? Now, there are many things. It Actually, it would be an, an inexhaustible list. But let's just cover a few isms that we see in our world that that the first commandment forbids. First of all, it forbids polytheism. You know what polytheism is. It's the belief in many gods. Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. The Lord our God is one. There are no other gods. So believing in or paying homage to or seeking to appease the many gods of polytheistic religions is not okay with the true and living God. It's not okay. Well, the first commandment also forbids pantheism. You know what pantheism is. Pantheism is the belief that in some sense the universe and God are identical. That everything is in some sense divine. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is now and always has been separate from and transcendent over all he has made. We cannot identify anything in the creation as being divine, as possessing divine attributes. I, you know, I know as well as you do that, that creation is stunning. Creation is beautiful. Creation is breathtaking. Creation is awe-inspiring. But the glories that we see in creation are not to be worshipped and adored. They're given to us by God that they might awaken in us praise to the Creator awe and wonder at Him. Adoration of Him. 
Thoughts of how beautiful he must be given how beautiful the creation is. Thoughts of how mighty he is when we consider the scope and the scale of creation. They're designed, every dimension of creation is designed to lift our hearts to worship Him, to delight in Him, and to thank Him. Now the first commandment also forbids atheism. Atheism. Now I mean no disrespect, but both Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1 say... The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Which means that it's a sinful folly to not believe in God. Or to deny God, or to live as if he doesn't exist. Now, certainly in my experience, and I think this may be true in yours as well, most of the people I've met who profess atheism do so not because they've, they, they've been persuaded by a lack of evidence of God's existence. Instead, it's because, it's because they have a, a compulsion to escape any thought of ultimate accountability. And, and a, a longing and a desire to escape the the voice of an uneasy conscience. Well, there is no God then. That doesn't mean that there is no God, just because you say so. And it doesn't mean that you're not accountable to Him. And it doesn't mean that your conscience is a figment of your imagination. Well, the, the first commandment also forbids agnosticism. Agnosticism is the twin sister of atheism. Agnosticism allows for the possibility of God. It's, it sees that there's abundant evidence that there must be a first cause. There must be some form of, of intelligence behind everything that we see. It allows for the possibility of God philosophically, but it asserts that whether he exists or not ultimately is unknowable. Ag Gnostic. Ag means, means without or, or no. Gnosis is the word for wisdom. We can't know, or for knowledge. We can't know whether he exists or not. And again, I, I mean no disrespect, but God is knowable. And he's made himself known to everybody. And to suppress or deny that knowledge, to intentionally and willfully push it away and push it down provokes the anger of God. Paul couldn't be clearer in Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known, what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without an excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's that word foolish hearts. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And Paul kicks into worship, who is forever blessed. Amen. Well, the first commandment also forbids deism. Now, deists accept the existence of a creator on the basis of reason. They say, yes, there is a creator. I believe in a creator. But they deny that he intervenes or interacts with his creation in any way. He got the whole thing started and walked away. Lost interest. Left us on our own. Brothers and sisters, far be it from God, whose name is love, to be aloof and disinterested. Not a sparrow falls to the ground that he doesn't see and care. His eye is on the sparrow. I know he watches me. He has interacted with us. He walked with Adam in the garden. He spoke from this mountain after he delivered his people from slavery. He became a man and walked among us, commanding nature, healing the sick, raising the dead. He has not turned his back on the world he created. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. The first commandment forbids deism. The first commandment also forbids apathy. In my studies, I came across a new, a new word, a new ism that I wasn't aware of before. It's called apathyism. Apathyism. It's a term that was coined around 2001, and it's a mashup of the words apathy and theism. Apathyism. An apathyist is someone who is not interested in entertaining any claim that God exists or does not exist. The existence of God or of God's is not rejected. It's simply regarded as irrelevant. Kyle Beshear, a Baptist pastor, wrote a book in 2016 entitled Apathyism. And the subtitle of it was this, How We Share When They Don't Care. How we share when they don't care. And he says, apathyism is when a person 
believes that God is unimportant. It's the listless shoulder shrug that comes after a teenager is asked about her faith. It is the growing motivation for circling none when asked about religious preferences on social surveys. And it's becoming one of the greatest challenges to evangelism and discipleship, more so than even atheism. The atheist and the agnostic are willing to talk about God, at least on a philosophical level. But apathists see no reason to even talk about God. And they find any conversation about him to be unbearably boring. And his book addresses how we might engage them. I I know the thesis of his book, but you'll have to look it up yourself because there's no time to open that up. For our purposes, we simply say this morning that all such apathy is forbidden by the first commandment, which is all the more evident when we consider, finally, and to close this sermon, what the commandment requires. What does the first commandment require? We've considered what it forbids. What does it require? Well, as we'll see as we go through this series, in the Ten Commandments, where something is forbidden, its opposite is required. And when something is required, its opposite is forbidden. So if having other gods is prohibited, having him as our only God is the required duty. You shall have no other gods. That means we shall have him as our God and our only God. Thus, the first commandment requires that we know and acknowledge God to be the only true God. It requires that we worship and glorify Him. It requires that we love and fear and honor God at all times, above all things. And with all our hearts. Ah, I was singing old worship songs this morning and last night. I will worship with all of my heart. I will praise you with all my soul. You alone are worthy to be praised. This commandment requires of us worship and adoration. A teacher came up to Jesus one day. He said, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. It's the first commandment positively restated. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So how do we keep the first commandment? We keep the first commandment 
by loving the Lord. Love the Lord. Love Him. How should we love Him? How much should we love Him? <laughs> love Him with all your heart. That's a lot of love. love. Love Him with all your heart. Love Him with all your soul. Love Him with all your mind. And if we go with a different translation, love Him with all your strength. Love Him with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Brothers and sisters, that is the opposite of apathy. That is the opposite of apathy. It's love. It's zeal. It's passion. It's fondness. It's tenderness. It's warmth. It's affection. It's adoration. It's devotion. It's worship. How do we keep the first commandment? We love him and worship him with all our hearts. Let me ask you a question as we close. Do you love him like that? Do you adore him like that? Are you devoted to him like that? I know you want to be. You, you want to love him like that. You want to adore him like that. You want to be devoted to him like that. Because, you know why you want it? Because it's what you were made to do. It's what you were made to do. One of the first times I was ever filled with the Holy Spirit, I was in a meeting called TAG, and we were singing some of those simple worship choruses. I was a Presbyterian. I didn't believe in raising my hands, but I began to feel like a sense that the praise in that room was ascending to the Lord like incense as people were pouring out their love and praise to Him. And I thought, well, it's in the Psalms. I'm going to raise my hands. So I lifted my hands, and it was as if I was caught up in that uprising of praise and worship and honor and glory to God. And I felt the Lord whisper in my heart. I wasn't used to hearing the Lord whisper things in my heart. I was getting filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment, and I felt the Lord speak to me in my heart saying, this is what you were made to do. We want to love him like that with all our hearts because it's what we were made to do. Now, Jesus walked in that kind of devotion to the Father. And when he was tempted by the devil, he brought no other gods before him. When Jesus liberated us, he didn't liberate us from this commandment. He liberated us to keep it. He liberated us so that we could keep it. So that we would know joy inexpressible and full of glory. So brothers and sisters, from hearts transformed by grace, 
with new longings implanted within our souls by the Holy Spirit to find joy in obeying His commands. Let us have no other gods before Him. Let us reserve for God alone our deepest affection, our most loyal devotion, and our highest praise. Amen.